Father God, thank you uh, for those that are here today, that they were able to get here, their cars drove, and that uh, the roads were safe enough. And I know it's a beautiful day outside today, but yesterday was crazy, and uh, different folks had different losses. I know there were cars that were damaged, and buildings, and uh, trees that went over. And I pray that you would have protected people, and that people wouldn't have been harmed. I know that there's potential for even death in these situations, and we don't want to be insensitive to that. And I pray, God, if there's opportunities for us to demonstrate your love as a result of the tragedies that have happened, that you'd make us aware of those things, and that you'd make us willing and desirous to be Jesus to the people that need that. And I pray, God, that you would help us to be a great church body with one another, each with different gifts and abilities, that we'd use those gifts and abilities and uh, help one another, bear each other's burdens, and care for one another. I pray for those who don't have power, that you'd restore their power, and uh, that it would just be an inconvenience and not a major loss. Father, I pray as we open your word, that you'd open our hearts. Please speak to us. Help us have an encounter with you and change us to be the people you desire for us to be. Humble us. Help us be receptive to what it is that you have for us on this day at this time with the things that are happening in our lives. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, today we're talking about greatness, true greatness or lasting greatness, real greatness. And as I was getting ready for the message, I sat down on Thursday. Thursday's when I typed the message up. And I sat on my computer and I typed in on Google. You know how Google's smart? I typed in on Google, top 10 greatest, and then I didn't write the next word, and it starts to guess what you're going to write. And I think it knows like everything you've ever done on the internet at that point. It tries to guess like the five or six things that are on there. So I type in, and I don't know if you ever do this, maybe I'm just weird, but sometimes I'll type in something I would have never thought to type in because I'm like trying to pump fake Google, like just mess with them a little bit. Maybe it's just my weirdness, but I type in top 10 greatest and I pause and it gives me this list of like five or six things. The first word on the list was top 10 greatest movies, which then got me thinking about things that have been happening in my life. Like it actually does know what's happening in my life. And some of you may have seen, I post on Facebook a few weeks ago that my wife and I have been having this dialogue that she's appalled by the movies I haven't seen in my life. And it happened, I don't know, about a month ago she found out I had never seen the movie The Princess Bride. Some of you may be, yes, you're offended. There's awe strikes through the crowd. And then I actually had my sister-in-law, she's nine years younger than me. She was in my youth group when I was a youth pastor. She came over and saw that I posted it on Facebook. She was so upset. She said, how are you a youth pastor? As if I'm disqualified for ministry because I haven't seen The Princess Bride. Well, I've seen it now, by the way. But then what came, it kind of all came to fruition. When we were going through Netflix and we were trying to find a movie that we wanted to watch with our kids, and we didn't want to see anything with talking animals or animation. Now, it gets real hard at that point for those of you who aren't in that stage of life, just so you know. And so we started to talk about what are movies we saw when we were kids, which aren't always a good idea. You don't remember some of the bad things that were in them, but one of the movies that came up on Netflix was E.T., and I said to my wife, I said, I've never seen E.T., to which she then responded, what did you do when you were a kid? Because... I was alive in the 80s, and the E.T. was made in 1982, and we watched E.T., and this is where I got some response from some different folks on Facebook, is I put out there, I didn't like the movie. And so I'm going to tell you the movie, and if you have never seen it, maybe you're thinking about because today you're just going to hang out and watch movies today, put your fingers in your ears and la, 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 I'm going to tell you what happens in E.T. Here's what E.T., this boy meets an alien, they become friends, there's about two and a half hours or two hours of garbly goo that's real boring, some bikes fly in front of the moon, and then the alien goes home. Two thumbs down. Like, I hated that movie. And I put it on Facebook that that was true. And one of my friends, you can go to my Facebook page if you want to know who it was. I won't throw him under the bus, but he's out there publicly saying it. He said, everything about your childhood is dumb too, Scott. He's mad about this. And so, totally understand. But who decides what movies are great? If I had typed in top 10 greatest movies, there would have been lists. Who came up with the list? Now, some people, there was a guy who came to me, and he's here today. I see him. He came up to me after church on Sunday last week. So we talk about, you know, the message and the spirit moves and people are getting saved. And he comes up and he says, 
you better not ever say you don't like the Princess Bride. So I'm not mentioning that today. He's bigger than I am. And besides, how can you not like a movie that teaches about love, true love? Why? How do you not love that? I did watch it. See, I have seen it now. Been restored to ministry. But, but who comes up with the list? Because I bet your list is different than my list of top 10 greatest movies. And, and so what I did when I was on Google, because Google's smart, is I typed in top 10 greatest, and they gave me a list. And it was movies, and then the next one was rappers, just so you know. The next one was rap songs, and then it was like poetry or something, which I don't even look up poetry, and so I don't know how I was doing that. And then I thought, what is it going to say if I just hit enter? Like, I won't even pick a topic. Just top 10 greatest, and I did. Within less than a second, it gave me over 9 million entries. Now, I do care about preparing for the messages. I did not go through those 9 million websites. But think about all the things that could be listed on 9 million websites of top 10 greatest. And I made a list. So this is a list of a list. Top 10 greatest movies, songs, love songs, rappers, rap songs, prison breaks. Yes, that did come up. Soccer players, athletes, Olympians, paintings, musicals, Broadway plays, actors, actresses, poems, poetry, teams, football players, football teams, basketball players, basketball teams, moments in history, moments in your life, vacations, photos, salespeople, Yankees, meaning baseball, video games, running backs, quarterbacks, places to visit, places to live, jobs, and a little bit less than 9 million other options for the top 10 greatest things that could be out there. But the question is, who decides? And how do they decide? Just pick one of those things. Best basketball player. Who picks? Some people would say Michael Jordan. Some people would say LeBron James. But if you decide because you're going to pick who scored the most points, Michael Jordan's fourth, LeBron James is 11th. So how do you decide? Who decides the list? That's the problem. And I had a friend who knew I was speaking on this topic. He emailed me this week and sent me a list from Time Magazine. It was the 100 most significant people throughout all of history. And so if you look that up, what you'll find is an article, and it's, it's tempting to go right to the list, but I challenge you to read the first few paragraphs before the list. Because they talk about how they determined who was on the list. And they said, for instance, how do you decide who's more influential, Britney Spears or Aristotle? Some of us just think, well, well obviously, Britney Spears, right? <laughs> but they came up with an algorithm that determined who was the most significant. And that's why a president, Chester Arthur, came 499th. And Justin Bieber was 8,633rd on the list. But what if they're wrong in how they put the list together? You might like some of the conclusions, you may agree with some of them, but you might not agree with others. And here's the really dangerous thing. What if someone decides they're going to live their life based on that kind of algorithm and they're pursuing greatness, which isn't wrong, by the way, but they're going down the wrong path? That's dangerous. And see, I bet everyone here has a desire to be great at whatever it is you do whether you're a student or whether you're a teacher, whether you're a mom or whether you're a kid, whether you're a basketball player or a counselor or an HR consultant or whatever it is that you do for a job, whatever it is that's your platform in this world, you want it to matter, and that's okay. But what if you get on the wrong path in the process? And what I bet is true, I didn't look at all 9 million websites, but I bet that almost all of them are going to fade from relevance at some point. Just like some of you have probably been part of things that they don't matter anymore. Who cares who was the best dressed when you were in high school? For those of you who are now two years or more out of high school, those of you who are like 10 years or more out of high school, if you were best dressed, wear those clothes again and see if anyone tells you you're best dressed. <laughs> that list is irrelevant. Who cares who they voted most likely to succeed in your high school class? It doesn't matter now. And the same is going to be true with those 9 million websites that are there at some point they're going to be irrelevant. But what we're talking about today is a lasting greatness that will matter in 100, 1,000, 10,000 years from now for all of eternity. 
You have a desire that's innate. It's in you. That what you do, you want it to matter. You want it to make a difference. It's a desire to be great, and that's okay. Just don't go down the wrong path. And so today we're going to talk about how to pursue a lasting greatness. We're going to be in Mark chapter 9, if you have your Bibles, where Jesus talks about this very topic with his disciples. Now remember in this section of Mark that we've been going through in this series that we've been doing, started in Mark chapter 8 and verse 31, and what Jesus is doing is he's telling his followers what it means to follow him, because there's no such thing as a follower who doesn't follow, who doesn't follow in the steps of Jesus, which means to deny self, take up your cross. What does that look like? Now that's what he's talking about since then, but he knows it's a tough teaching, and he's a good shepherd. And so he cares for these guys, and he tells some of them they need encouragement. Peter, James, and John, you're going to come with me up on this mountain. And you can read the phrasing that he uses. You're not going to taste death before you see the glory of God, before you see the power of the kingdom of God come. So I'm going to take you up on this mountain. You're going to get a glimpse of my glory, because you're, you're going to need that. You're going to need to know who I am. They go up on this mountain. They have this incredible experience. They see the transfiguration where the glory of God shines from Jesus, not just reflects off him, from Jesus, because he is God. And then they come down off the mountain. They step from the mountaintop into the mission. They come from the mountaintop into the valley. They go into the pain where there's difficulty and there's failure. And last week we talked about the blessing of failure, which sounds like the opposite of this week's message, but it's not. They go together. They come in. These other nine disciples have just blown it. There's this guy who's in pain, his greatest pain in his life. He's trying to help his son. He's crying out, can you help us? If you can do anything, help us. And the disciples are having an argument with some other religious guys, a religious argument. They've already blown it. And you realize that there's so much failure in this passage. The guy even says, I can't even believe unless you help me believe. I believe, help my unbelief. And the disciples were unable to help this guy, but Jesus does. And when that's done, it wasn't really about that guy. It was about the disciples. And so what we get is Mark doesn't even talk about the response of the boy. He doesn't talk about the response of the father. Instead, you've got the disciples asking Jesus in a room, why did we fail? Jesus tells them, because you didn't even pray. And then he goes on to give some teaching. They don't get that. And then, and this is comical, but very personal. They start arguing about how great they are. (laughs) Failure, 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 failure. We're awesome. All right, let's read it. Mark chapter 9, verse 30. They left that place where Jesus had just told them they failed to pray and passed through Galilee. Jesus didn't want anyone to know they were there, where they were. Verse 31, because he was teaching his disciples, he said to them, the Son of Man, that's him, he's talking about himself. We talked about that in Daniel. It's a reference to the Messiah. The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days, he will rise. Now, we just started this series in Mark chapter 8 and verse 31. This is the third time he's talked about his death, his suffering, his resurrection. It happened in Mark chapter 8, verse 31. It happens in chapter 9, verse 12. He says, why does the Son of Man have to suffer, be rejected? And then he does it again here. You'd think they would at least go, this is really important. He keeps talking about it. Maybe we should ask. Look at verse 32. They didn't understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. So they fail to even humble themselves enough to ask a question. Verse 33. They came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, probably Peter's house, we don't know for sure, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? So apparently as they were walking along, they're having an argument. We don't know if Jesus heard it, but he was earshot away or just divine knowledge. He knows They don't answer. Look at verse 34. But they kept quiet because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. This reminds me of when I catch my kids doing something and I know what they did and I ask the question and everybody knows what's happening but they don't want to say because they're embarrassed. That's how the disciples are feeling here. They don't say. But Jesus, he's gracious and gentle but authoritative. Look what he says. Sitting down, Jesus called the 12 and said, 
If anyone wants to be first, he must be the very last and the servant of all. In verse 36, he gives this visual parable. He took a child, took a little child, and had him, as a little boy, stand among them. Taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me, that's the father. So let's think about what happened here. Back to the context. They've blown it. They failed. Nine of the disciples couldn't cast out a demon. And not only that, they weren't even helping the guy anymore. By the time Jesus and the other three disciples show up, they're arguing with some other religious people. Fail. The guy, the father fails, his, his faith fails. Then these guys, they come in. Why did we fail? We told you about your failure. Then he teaches them some more stuff, and they fail to even ask a question. Now they have a conversation. Aren't we awesome? Like, it is comical, but it's also personal because we can identify. But before we get into what Jesus teaches, let me point out what he doesn't do in this passage. Because if you think about that context, what the natural thing to do would be to rebuke them for their pursuit of greatness. They're arguing about how they're great, arguing about who is the greatest. And so you failed, you failed, you failed, you failed. You didn't even ask the right question. You didn't even ask a question. You failed even in that. You're not getting what's going on. You're not praying. You're blowing it. And now you're arguing about who's the greatest. Cut it out. You guys aren't great, would be the natural thing to say. If I were Jesus, and we're all thankful that I'm not, I would have said to the disciples, cut it out. Quit arguing about who's the greatest. But notice that's not what Jesus does in the passage. Not once does he rebuke their ambition. And I want you to get this. You've got to get this to understand the rest of the message. Ambition is not wrong. If anyone wants to be great, he knows they want to be great. He knows what they've been arguing about. There's nothing wrong with the desire for greatness. In fact, I'm willing to guess that most of you have it. Now, I know there's some people that settle. There's some people that just decide. Everything's, you know, C's get degrees, right, in college. Get that? You ever say that? Some people decide they're just going to survive. They're just going to make it through life. But most people have a desire. There's something that's probably happened at that point that's gotten you that. Most people have a desire that if I'm going to do this, I want to be the best that at least I can be in this. It's, it's a desire for greatness. Jesus doesn't rebuke the ambition. Ambition's not wrong. Selfish ambition is wrong. Ambition is not wrong. The problem is that most of us go down because we're twisted, because of the fall, we're broken. We go down the wrong path with that ambition, and we use it as selfish ambition for our own glory, for our own gain, for all those things. And what Jesus is going to give us in this passage is the path to greatness, but there's a passion to it. And so in the points I'm going to give you today, I'm going to use intense language. I could have said a passionate pursuit. I'm going to say races to, could say runs to, goes after, is driven, could say it a lot of ways. But I'm going to say it races to, and the thing that you need to get is the last word in the phrases I'm going to give you for the points. Those who are on a pursuit of greatness race to, you go after it with passion, race to humility is the first one. In a pursuit of greatness, you must race to humility. And you go to our passage, and Jesus gives picture after picture of humility. You think about what's happened here. They're arguing about who's the greatest, which seems silly. They're in a house. There's not huge crowds around. And it says that Jesus sits down. Now, why does Jesus sit down? You've got to ask yourself, why, does, why are you telling us this detail? There's a lot of details you don't tell us, Mark. Why do you tell us this detail? And he's not saying because Jesus was chill. Like, he's just going, I don't know, we're going to have a casual conversation. I'm going to sit down. No, sitting was the seat of a teacher. It was a position of a teacher. And what's being told to us is a, it's a notifier here. Jesus is about to drop some knowledge on these guys. He's about to give them some information that's revolutionary, that will change the path of their life if they'll listen to it. So he's sitting down to teach them in this moment, but 
you get what he teaches here. He says, if anyone wants to be first, and we know it's, they want to be first. They have the desire, the ambition, that's not wrong, to be first. They're, they're right there with him. He must, this isn't just a tip, must be the very last. That's humility. And the servant of all, that's humility. And then he gives this visual picture, a visual parable, where he takes a child. Now, I thought to myself, as teaching this week, I could say, if you have a child that's somewhere between like three and seven, why don't you send them up here and we'll just get the idea, get the picture of what Jesus has. Well, here's the problem if I did that. Some of you got some really cute kids. McFadders, you got some cute kids. And Lindsay's, you got some cute, you got to, be great kids if they came up here. But here, that's what we would do is we'd be like, oh, that's a cute kid. Now, some of you might think, hey, why did he pick that kid? My kid's cuter. We'll get to that in the message in a minute. But we view kids different than they viewed kids. I'm not even here to tell you which one's right and wrong today. I just want you to get the idea that it's different. We use kids to sell stuff. We have kids celebrities. We've got, you could call it kidolatry. Not for your family, but lots of families. Everything in their life revolves around their kid. So the kid has position. The kid has power. If you're, you know, everything's on their nap time, their feeding time, their, their soccer games, they've got to be in this, and they've got to make sure they do theater too in case they're an actor, but they're going to be an athlete in case they're an Olympian. Kids have power and position in our society. That's what I want you to understand. They did not then. The kid is a picture of someone who has no position, has no power. Rabbis wouldn't even teach a kid that was under 12 years old because they viewed it as a waste of time. So I'm not saying one's right, I'm not saying one's not even talking about that today. I just want you to know that it's different. And so if I brought, you know, little Johnny up here, you'd be like, remember the day little Johnny helped Pastor Scott with the message? No, you missed the point. The point is little Johnny's irrelevant. And so here's the kid. The lowest... The no position. It was a picture of vulnerability. A kid only did the Father's will. A picture of humility. Totally humble. It's not about them. He brings the kid up. It's a picture of humility. But he he teaches on humility too because he said, go back to the verse, verse 35, where he teaches, sitting down, Jesus called the 12. Who else is there? Apparently a kid. Maybe it's Peter's kid. And he said, if anyone, that's them, us, anyone, wants, the desire's there, the desire's not wrong, to be first. He doesn't rebuke that. He must. This is Jesus speaking, red letters. It's not Scott's ideas on a TED Talk or a tip for living. You must. Divine necessity. If you want to be great, this is the path you have to go down. Be the very last. So you rush to be last. You race, you pursue. What does that mean to be last? Well, it means you put others ahead of you. It doesn't just mean you're the last one out of here. No one's going to leave the auditorium today when this is over with. All right, you got to get out first, and then you, and then I'm going to be last, Jesus said. Everyone else is disobedient. That's not the point. But the point is you're putting people ahead of yourself. See, a lot of times in Christianity, we think that humility means that we think like bad of ourselves, like we think low thoughts about ourselves. But the reality is that humility is you're not even thinking about yourself. You're thinking about other people. So you rush to be last. You're, it's like I remember one time seeing James McDonald. He's a pastor up in uh, the Chicago area. I saw him preach a message one time. It was live. He's a big dude. And he was up on stage and he was talking about John chapter 13, which is a great passage on humility. It's when Jesus washes his disciples' feet. And I can't remember exactly what he was talking about. The image I have, though, is he did ask a guy to come up there. And the guy that came up on stage was big like him. And he talked about them. I thought he was talking about them being in an argument. And they started leaning on each other. And he talked about trying to be the one that gets lowest first. And that means racing to humility. That's the idea. So it's, it's like this. When you're in an argument with your spouse, it's not falsely saying that you're wrong and apologizing about things that aren't true. You might be right. But how do you put their needs ahead of yours in that argument? 
the way you win the argument is not to get that person to concede. It's not to get them to agree with you. It's if you're racing to humility, that you're thinking about them. Why are they saying what they're saying? Why are they doing what they're doing? And if you want to be great, you've got to race to humility. And you think about through the Bible, what does God say about humility? And you think about, think, think to yourself as I read, I'm going to read you some verses. What do you want God to think about you? How do you want to relate with him? What would you like him to do in your life? And let me read you some verses on humility. In Isaiah chapter 66 and verse 22, he says this. This is the one I esteem. Would you like God, God to esteem you? He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Here's a verse that you're going to hear as the election gets closer. 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face, what will he do? And turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and forgive their sin and heal their land. You want God to listen to you? Humble yourself. In Isaiah chapter 6, it doesn't say the word humble, but it's a picture of somebody humbling themselves. It's Isaiah the prophet. He says, woe to me. Verse 5, I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips. He recognizes his sinfulness, God's holiness, and I live among a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. But what's great, and you'll have to do this in your own study, is you keep reading Isaiah chapter 6, you get to verse 8, and God, God's gracious with them. He lets them be there, and then he says, here I am, use me. God uses the humble. So he listens to the humble, he esteems the humble, he uses the humble. Let me read you another verse. James chapter 4 and verse 6. But he gives us more grace, James says. That's why the scripture says, this isn't the only place it says it, you can find it in Peter as well. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Some translations say he exalts the humble. Humbles the proud, exalts the humble. So that means this, if you're functioning in pride, you're actually fighting against God. You, God opposes you. Now here's the reality, you can have selfish ambition, pursue your goals, obtain your goals, you will be empty. Because you're fighting against God and he's the only one that can satisfy God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. He listens to the humble. He forgives the humble. He heals the humble. He uses the humble. He's doing all these things for the humble. Why wouldn't we race to humility? Here's why. Because we're proud. And we're selfish. And you see it with these disciples. They're arguing here. Mark doesn't tell us what they say. But he does tell us they're arguing about which one is the greatest among them. And what we do know is the context here. The context being, three of them just went up on the mountaintop with him, Peter, James, and John, had this amazing experience. They come down. The other nine have just blown it. They, don't, they didn't even pray. I would imagine if I were Peter, James, or John, I'd probably say, you guys didn't even pray? Like, I would have at least prayed. That's pride. And I wonder how the argument went. If you're arguing, and you're these guys, I don't think the other nine can say they're, they're the top three, but at least those three guys can say, well, if I'm the, at least I'm in the top three of the greatest, but I don't think the argument probably went, I think that I'm at least number two because then I can tell this guy he's number one and I at least have two votes for being number two and then there's number three. But you're six and you're seven and you're 11 and you're 12 and where does Judas get ranked? Do they mess that up really bad or what? I don't think that's how the argument went. I don't know. He didn't tell us here, but something tells me it was probably a lot more like a lot of our conversations. And most people don't say, hey, I'm number one, you're number two and somebody else can be five and... Usually it goes something like this, and it depends on the context. So if you got maybe a couple business guys out in the cafeteria afterwards, and guys, how was your week? Oh, it's a tough week. Now, it all depends on his motive in this situation, because this all might be true. 
I had a hostile takeover of this company and trust me with so much responsibility. It's so hard and I had to fly on the corporate jet and the corporate jet's just not as big as it used to be. And blah, blah, blah. I'm awesome. Why don't I just say that? Now maybe you really did have a rough week and maybe you really did have to do a hostile takeover and I'm not saying that that's bad. What's your motive? You're usually, oftentimes, we're telling we're the greatest because of our pride. That's boasting. And then you've got you know, maybe, maybe some moms that will be talking. How, how are things going with you, know, you and little Rob? Oh, Rob, he's really struggling learning Mandarin. I mean, French, German, Spanish, and Pig Latin were really easy, but Mandarin, all those symbols. And then you've got some other mom over in the corner, and she's going, you know, well, Zach, he's just picking his nose. And I'm such a terrible mom. And we think to ourselves that that mom is humble. That's not humility, just so you know. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's not thinking how bad you are. It's how you didn't measure up. The nine guys who weren't on the mountain were also guilty of pride in this passage. They were all arguing about who was the greatest. They were probably all doing it in different ways. Let me tell you why that second one, the boasting, that's kind of obvious, right? Like, I've done that one, so I know that's, that's pride. But you know what? I've done the other one, too. That's also pride. It's just in Christianity, a lot of times we make it look like humility because of our false views of what humility is. Here's why it's still pride. Because they're still thinking about themselves. Man, we're just not, why didn't we get picked to go up on the mountain? How come we couldn't be? That's pride too. And it's very ironic when you consider the ultimate context here that Jesus is given the ultimate picture of humility. In verse 31, he taught them about his death. Talk about putting others first. That is the picture of humility. Look at verse 31 again. And Remember, this is the third time he's talked about this. The Son of Man, that's him, is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days, he will rise. Who's the Son of Man? Well, we saw in Daniel 7, he's the Messiah. And so he left heaven, a perfect place, and came to a place of pain. That wasn't for his own self-interest, by the way. That was for you. He was putting others first. That is humility. He's not going, oh, I'm just, it's so bad. Do you see how bad it is? Do you see? That's not the point. He's doing it for them out of love for them. And so he takes the Father, he's, he commits no sin and takes all of the Father's wrath because of our sin. We've all sinned. Anytime we sin, it is rebelling against God. We are his enemies. And all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So we're all his enemies. Romans chapter 5 and verse 8 says that while we were his enemies, Christ died for us. And so he, take, he comes from a place, heaven, where they're singing he's the king of kings and the lord of lords. And he comes here and he gets mocked. That's when he gets betrayed. And they mockingly call him the king of the Jews. They strip him naked. They put a robe on his back. They put a thorn crown on his head. Why? It's not because he thought that would be fun. He was doing it for you. It's a picture of humility. That's why Paul says what he says in Philippians chapter 2, that your attitude should be like that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality as God something to hold on to, became a servant. And he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. But get verses 9 through 11. I haven't quoted verses 9 through 11 to you in the past several weeks. I've been quoting those other verses. It says, therefore God exalted him to the highest place. God opposes the proud, but exalts the humble. Look what he does for Jesus. And gave him the name that's above every name, verse 10, that the, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess, Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of the Father. And so he gives him, he's, even Time Magazine got this one right. I don't know what their algorithm was, but Jesus was number one on the list. 
He is the greatest, and he does the ultimate act of humility. You want to be great? Awesome. That's okay. You want to be exalted? That's okay for the glory of God, not selfish ambition. What is humility? Philippians chapter 2 and verse 3. Right before that passage, Paul tells the Philippian church, he's not just talking about Jesus, he's talking to believers. He says this, do nothing out of selfish ambition. Ambition's not wrong. We see that in this passage. Selfish ambition's wrong. Or vain conceit, emptily thinking about yourself. But consider others better than yourself. That's what Jesus says right here. If anyone wants to be first, he must be the very last. We race to humility. You want to be great? Awesome. Then race to humility. But humility put into action looks like service. And so if we want to be great, if we're going to pursue greatness, we must race to service. And look at the passage, verse 35. All the teaching comes right from verse 35 is where Jesus says this stuff right here. Sitting down, Jesus called the 12 and said, if anyone wants, and we know that's okay, to be first, yep, that's good. He must, it's not a, just not an option, not a way you might choose. You must be the very last and the servant of all. Circle that last word, all. That's interesting. Because you could just say, well, we've got to serve. Well, everybody serve. Find your place of service and do the gifts assessment, and that's not bad stuff, but do it and kind of check that box off. But the fact that it says all, who are all? And start thinking about your life, the people that God's brought into your life. Who are we to serve then? All these people. So that every situation that we come into contact with, we should be thinking to ourselves, how can I serve in this situation? How can I serve that person? And, and I was thinking, as I was reflecting on this passage this week, I remember last week during the service, and some of you were here, some of you weren't here, but uh, Nikki Fenske, who's a member of our church, got up, and it was during the worship, and she was given a testimony to preview a testimony she was going to give at Celebrate Recovery on Thursday night. And she got up here, and I remember everybody was into it, you know, God's working, and we're all enjoying the worship. And she asked this question. She said, do you remember the first person who hurt you? And it got still. And I think it's because everyone here can answer that question. You probably all had somebody that came to your mind. Is that part of the all? And Jesus here grabs this child right after this passage. Someone who can't do anything for you? The lowest position? All? And then I start thinking through that, and I think, well, who does that? And how do you do that? And you go to the passage, and Jesus doesn't tell us here. He doesn't say how to do this in this passage. He just tells us to do it. So where else in the scripture do we find how do, how do you do this? And the passage I go to is in Hebrews chapter 12. In Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, the author of Hebrews tells us this. Therefore, just after, therefore coming after talking about the chapter of faith, people who live by faith. This requires faith, by the way. Therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race. Oh, that, I love that he uses race because that's the point. <laughs> race, race. Yeah, I thought of that ahead of time. Anyway, the race marked out for us. And so he's got something, he's got a plan marked out for us. And how do we do this? Well, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, who's not just an example. See, Philippians 2, we talk about him as our example. He is an example, but he's not just an example. It's not, hey, let's just live our lives like, that's a, he's a good moral guy. Let's live our lives like Jesus. He was selfless and he was the greatest. And I'd like to be like somewhere in the top 9 million. Maybe I can get on the list if I'm like, no, that's not it. He's more than just an example. He's the author and perfecter of our faith. He is our Savior. Fix your eyes on him who for the joy set before him endured the cross. Oh, we're talking about the cross again. It's like back in 831 and 912 and 931. To the joy, he endured the cross, scorning its shame. Who wants shame? He sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. 
received a place that he was exalted. He humbled himself. He was exalted. What do we do? We fix our eyes on Jesus. And who is Jesus? He's the one who's not just a picture of humility. That is the ultimate picture of love, what he did at the cross. And what would it be like for you just to soak in God's love? Think about the fact that you were his enemy. Not that you were a nice guy and you just needed a little help. You were his enemy and he died for you. His love isn't based on you serving him or not serving him. You sinning, not sinning. That he loves you and it's based on his character and his character doesn't change. His character is love. God is love. Here's how we know what love is. You lay your life down. But for your enemy... Like some people might die for a righteous person. Some people might die for a good person. Some people might lend their generator to someone at church whose power went out that they like. But your enemy? We were his enemies, and he loves, that's how much he loves you. You think about if you got, if you became secure in that love, and I think about this for, my own, for myself too, if I became secure, I'd be free to serve anybody because it wouldn't matter what they were thinking. It wouldn't matter what was happening. It wouldn't even matter what happened to me. I'd be free. But what stops us from being free is not, you can call it selfishness, and it is. You can call it different pride, and it is, and you can call it sin. But think about the pride that we're talking about. The pride of the person who's boasting is they're covering up their insecurities. I know, I've done it. The pride of the person who's feeling bad for themselves because things aren't going the way they want it to do, they're covering up their insecurities. They're crying about that stuff. I know because I've done that too. Have we covered everybody here yet, by the way? We've all got pride. I think we all have pride. The cure to the pride is understanding the love that God has for you. Not because you were awesome, because you weren't. Because he is. And when you grasp that, it changes you because you can become secure in his love because now it doesn't depend on you from that day forward either. And think about the passage where, where I mentioned that James McDonald had preached before in John, John chapter 13. There's always been a verse in John chapter 13 that has struck me. It's an odd passage. I don't even know why it's in there until you really start to reflect on it. And what's going on in John chapter 13 is that they're having a meal. It's right before the Passover. Jesus is hours away from going to the cross. They're in this room together. And Jesus looks around and they all have dirty feet. The washing of feet is reserved for the lowest servant. And no one's doing it. And then Jesus gets up and does it. I'm going to read you verses 2 through 4 in John chapter 13. It's verse 3 I want you to notice. In verse 2 he says, The evening meal was being served and the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot the son of Simon, to portray Jesus. So pause, hold on. He washes Judas' feet. So he tells us to serve all. And he does it. I think, and again, we're all glad I'm not Jesus, but if I were Jesus, I'm pretty confident that I would have let, hey, Judas, why don't you go ahead and do what you're going to do? Just let him leave gracefully. But not Jesus. He even washes Judas' feet. Judas is there. And Satan's already prompted him. And Jesus knew. And here's the verse. Why do we need to know what Jesus knew? Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. Why do we need to know what Jesus knew? Why do we need to know about his power? Why do we need to know about his position? Verse 4. So, so therefore, the reason that, so he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, priestly garment, wrapped a towel around his waist, the garment of a slave, and then he goes and he washes all their feet. Why verse 3? Because what you see in verse 3 is Jesus was secure in his position, secure in his power. He knew where he was going. He knew he was going back to the Father. He knew that the one who humbled himself would be exalted. He trusted God's word, that God's promises would actually be true. 
He knew that all things have been put under his feet, under his power. He knew who he was. Security. And security then frees you to serve. And there are people who actually do that. And I was thinking about it in our church, the examples. And, and I have names in mind, but I thought it would probably be best not to share those names. Because one, I might forget somebody. And two, some of the people, if I did share their names, they'd be upset about it. But you just think about some of the things that happen in our church. If you left right now, if I laid you all out early and you went over to Bridge Kids, you could walk through there and you would, see, you would meet guys that are over there that own their own companies that are working in the nursery. Why? Those kids aren't going to help them get any further down the, up the ladder, more reputation. Why? Why are they doing that? There, there's, there's a guy I was thinking about that's taught my own kids. He's a mechanical engineer at, at one of the companies here in town. Why is he doing, why is he doing that? He's looking for places to serve. I started thinking about different ministries that different folks do in our church. There's a couple of families that, by the way, come up oftentimes when I talk to somebody who's hurting, been through a difficult time. It can be medical. It can be marital. It can be all kinds of things. And there's like these few names that keep coming up. And why is that? Oh, they just happen to know all the people that are in difficulty? No, they're looking for opportunities to serve. They're looking for ways to get involved in people's lives. There's some people that volunteer to go and, and just listen to people's problems at a ministry here in town. Oftentimes kids, and so we talk about kids in this passage, kids whose parents are getting divorced, kids who have cancer, kids who had parents that have committed suicide, I'm just not trying to tell them all the answers to life, just listening. Do you ever think about listening as a service? And why do people do that? Why are they doing I, There are people who do that. There's one woman I think of every Christmas Eve service we've ever had as a church. She's come hours before everybody else to make sure the flowers are in the right place, presents are in the right Why does she do that? And I bet None of those names are on the Time Magazine list. But I wonder, I bet they're going to be on God's. But why? Why? Why do they do that? And there's probably multiple reasons. There's two that I can think of that come from our passage. One is simply this. Because they want to be great. And that's okay. You want to be great? That's okay. Be last. You want to be great? That's okay. Serve everybody. They're racing to service because they want to be great. And there's another reason, I think. It's in verse 37. I think it says they want God. There's a longing in our soul to encounter him. It's like some of you are here today. Verse 37, he says, whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name, this picture of humility, this person who can't do anything for you, in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. I'm talking about the Father. There's a way in which when you're serving, you encounter God differently than when you're doing your Bible study, differently than in your small group, differently than in this situation, that when you're living this stuff out, that God meets you in that moment. That's why it's at the end. Why at the end of the Great Commission does it say, and lo, I'll be with you always. Go make disciples, baptize them, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, teach them to obey, not just to know, to obey everything. God's everywhere all the time. Why give the promise, and I'll be with you to the end of the age? Because he has a manifest presence that you encounter in the midst of service that you don't encounter in other ways. I was reading this week in the, a magazine, The Voice of the Martyrs. You can sign up for it online if you want it yourself. And I'll send you a monthly magazine. There's always a story in there of someone who's given their life for their faith. And I was reading this this month, October uh, 2016. And it was about this family that back in 2001, when the planes flew into the Twin Towers, uh, they felt like God was using that to spur them on to perhaps move to Afghanistan. And by 2003, they ended up moving. The, the wife was a doctor, 
and the husband was a senior pastor at a church in South America or South Africa, and they decided they were going to leave their comfortable life there and go to Afghanistan and try and reach folks in Afghanistan in a place where if you convert from being Muslim to Christian, they can execute you by law. So they were going to go there to try and make disciples, baptize them, teach them to obey everything. And the mom was very honest. She said the difficulty was that when we felt this call, I had a three-year-old and a five-year-old. And her parents even said to her, you wouldn't, God would never ask you with a three-year-old and a five-year-old to go to a place like that. You're doing God's work. You keep doing what you're supposed to be doing. But they knew that God was calling them to do it, so they did it. And the story was about 11 years later, almost 11 years later, a little bit more than 11 years later, where they had been doing this. And the husband, the, the church is there. There's a couple thousand believers that they know of in Afghanistan, but they don't have like buildings where they get to get, get together like this and sing songs and talk about the apostles' teaching and all that stuff. Instead, the pastor, he had to change to teaching like leadership classes where he then fit in the gospel. And he'd talk uh, classes where he'd teach English and he'd talk about Jesus in the classes. And the wife, her job was actually a little bit easier platform. Being a doctor, she'd work in these medical clinics and be able to share Jesus through that. But they had done it for 11 years or so and they had found out one morning there was going to be a terrorist attack. What they didn't know is the terrorist attack was going to be on their house. And so the mom went to the clinic. She's working like she normally did. And she tells the story of coming back. Streets were filled with police. Bad stuff was going on. What happened was there were three men outside their house, climbed over the wall uh, where there was a security wall around their house. The guard that was on their house came to those three men. They shot and killed the guard, went inside the house, began shooting, saying all kinds of stuff, shot the husband, then shot the two kids. Also shot a couple of Afghanis that were in there that were doing some of the leadership training that day. And the whole time the mom's outside this house. She's totally helpless. Can't do anything about it. They asked her about it afterwards. She said, do you regret coming here? And she said, I just wish I had been with my kids to hold them while they're facing those bullets, but I know that Jesus was with them in that moment. I said, do you ever get angry with God? This is two years ago this happened for them. She said, they asked her, do you ever get angry with God about this? She said, you know, her husband had preached a message about counting the cost of serving Christ one month in October. This is in November 2014, in October of 2014. And his last line of his sermon was, you only get to die once, you might as well die serving Christ. He didn't know what was going to happen. Isn't that crazy? And she said, serving there though, it wasn't like we went there to serve and everything was roses. She said it was sacrifice and it was a struggle and it was difficult, but then her exact quote was, our reward was his presence. He rewarded us with his presence. He was there. Why would, why would we do that? Why would we serve? He meets us in the service. That's what he's saying here in verse 37. Whoever welcomes one, if you go serve all, I'll meet you in that. I'll be there. I'm not saying it'll be easy. They went to serve. They're serving the all were people that could and would kill them. That wasn't what we oftentimes think of as joy. But she had joy in it because of God meeting her there. So what do we do? What, are, what is our response to a message like this? Here's what I hope your response is not to today's sermon. I hope you don't just like kids go home and decide you're going to make your parents lunch. Sorry, parents. Husbands, I hope you don't just go home and say, I want to give you a massage tonight, honey. That's fine. It's not just like we're doing Southbridge Serves this weekend. It's not to manipulate you to sign up for Southbridge Serves because the danger of that is that you do this task and you, I got that done. See, the hope would be that we would all start to look at how can I put others first? So then like two months from now, when you get an argument with your spouse, you think to yourself, how can I serve in this situation? So in like six months when another weather thing happens, you know, the snow comes or whatever happens with all that, some situation happens in our city, no one has to say, hey, think about your neighbors. Do they have a generator? But you just think, what can I, how can I be the hands and feet of Jesus in this situation? When you're being wronged at work, God, why is this an opportunity? What are you doing here? 
for me to be able to serve. Someone is disrespectful to you. Obnoxious acts always a cry for help, right? So how can you help them rather than show them their error? Well, that'd be the hope. And we'd all live this out. Now, let me tell you something. They don't get it in this passage. They're getting it from Jesus, and they don't get it. We will hear this sermon again in a few weeks because, again, they will get in an argument about who's the greatest. And, again, Jesus will have to teach them. I won't preach the exact same sermon. You can still come. But it's the point is the same. So will we be racing to humility? Will we be racing to service in a few weeks? I hope so because that's us being the church in our city and with one another. I'm going to pray that it would be true of us. Let's pray. Father, I pray for every software engineer in our church that you'd make them the greatest software engineer they can possibly be. And every mom and every dad and every teacher and police officer and consultant and lawyer and doctor and engineer, make them great. Make us great. Help me be a great pastor. But God, here's how this happened. Humble us. I'm scared to pray that. Humble us. Have us rush to serve, to serve you, and to serve in different ways. And we all have different gifts, and we all have different abilities, and different opportunities, and all that stuff. You work that out. You guide our hearts. Speak to our hearts in this moment by your Spirit. Help us fix our eyes on your Son, Jesus Christ, who is more than just an example, but loved us so much. Grow us in our security of your love. Transform us as your people and use us so that we'd pour our lives out like Paul says in Philippians. Pour us out like a drink offering. Use us up in the life that we have here. And help us to do it in ways that make an eternal difference. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.